This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 147. Today we speak with Bill Dennison about Machen and Boltmann and how their paths may have crossed at Marburg in 1905 and 1906. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 147, and my name is Camden Busey. We have another excellent episode lined up for you today, one that's going to be very stimulating to your Yes, and thanks for bringing your in-the-morning radio voice. We're ready to go. Thank you. And to speak uh, with a friend of ours, we are very pleased to welcome back to Christ the Center, Bill Dennison, who is the professor of interdisciplinary studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, as well as professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Northwest Theological Seminary in Linwood, Washington. Thanks for joining us, Bill. It's great to have you back. Thank you very much. Glad you invited me. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a great discussion. Uh, We're talking about modern philosophy, modern theology, uh, especially German philosophy's influence upon theology. But to do that, we have a very interesting historical case study. Uh, Bill has written an article in a recent German uh, journal, uh, the study of uh, the history of religions, or modern theology in uh, in the history of religions, comparing J. Gresson Machen and Rudolf Bultmann. And what do these two have in common, you might ask? Well, it turns out the historical evidence has just shown that the two attended courses together at Marburg in 1905 and 1906, the winter semester there. So we're going to be talking about Machen and Boltmann, a possible personal acquaintance, and what that would mean uh, for the world of theology and for uh, the history of our great uh, Presbyterian tradition. But before we do that, we have a few bits of news to mention. We are broadcasting live to Machen's Warrior children around the world on reformforum.tv. You can visit that website, and we have uh, audio and video live as we're able. And we also have a calendar at reformedforum.tv slash calendar where you can subscribe and find out when we are going to be broadcasting live, what time, and uh, where you might be able to find that. So if you'd like to keep track of our upcoming episodes and you'd like to participate in the chat room, as we record them, visit us online at reformedforum.tv. We also would like to mention our friend's website. Andrew Moody has a website called reformationart.com, and there you can find wonderful prints, uh, depictions of Reformed theologians and Reformed events throughout history at reformationart.com. If you're looking for something to go on your wall in your office, at home, uh, maybe in your church, and then uh, please visit reformationart.com. They have a Wonderful selection, and and they are very affordable and uh, wonderful pieces for things you can uh, spruce up your house with. We're going to be sprucing up our studio with them in the near future. So visit them online at reformationart.com. Jared, do we have anything uh, else we want to mention? Anything coming up with Westminster? Um, Or anything uh, recently? We just released uh, last week the episode uh, between Carl Truman and Dr. Lilback on politics, and that has been very successful. And uh, as this is broadcast uh, the elections will have been over, so yeah. uh, we'll we'll see if we influence the elections at all. But uh, we just had the preaching conference. That's right. Uh, is, are you aware of any audio that might be available from that? They're they're going to be working on it. There's actually video taken too, and so that's going to you know like anything else, it's going to roll out in its own time. But look out for that. Um, that's it, with uh, with uh, Dennis Johnson. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, right. and some special lectures by Dr. Beale, Mike Kelly, David Garner. Um, good content there. Yeah, Bill, you'd be interested. D- David Garner had a had a breakout session at this preaching conference talking about Voss's sermons and how um, really union with Christ in a in a deep um, connection with with Jesus and a basically a, a personal relationship with Him is essential for uh, correct preaching. It was very fascinating. Good. Good. And uh, you know all all those at uh, Northwest Theological Seminary, that would be something near and dear to their hearts, uh, the preaching of Gerhardus Voss. Right, exactly. And while we're on the subject, you should uh, check out KRUX, the KRUX Journal, which is a journal of that seminary, and uh, they're going to be moving online next year. Is that correct, Bill? 
Oh, yeah, that is correct. The last uh, issue in which it will be printed uh, for libraries and so forth uh, will be in December. Um, and um, and uh, Jim and uh, my brother Jim, who's the editor, encouraged uh, the faculty there to try to make con uh, contributions. I don't know how many are, but I did put in, which might be interesting to your readers, uh, your listeners, excuse mm -hmm. me, I did submit an article uh, on which is basically the introduction um, introduction of my course on apologetics there, the introductory lectures, oh, wow. lecture on that. Uh, so that gives a little bit of a taste. And I, I think what I wanted to do is, as Jim uh, appealed to us to maybe make a contribution to this last printed form, uh, to do something within our discipline. So uh -huh. I just wrote it up simply without footnotes uh, and so forth uh, as just an essay uh, that can be um, uh, read and, and looked at uh, quickly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so then So next year, he's going to go, to, uh, the KRUKS is going to go online. And, um, and a lot of it was just because of, of costs and right. also the direction of a lot of, uh, of print material yeah, anyway. Thamelios so. did that. Many others are, are going online, and, and it adds to the accessibility. Correct, um, but that that's handy. Uh, so look for that the Kirooks Journal. You can find it at your theological library. If not, you can uh, visit. Uh, was it nwts.edu? And you can, uh, yes, yes, you can or or Kirooks.com. Kirooks.com, and you can okay. find out how to subscribe or get a copy. And right. I, and it's very helpful, especially for biblical reform biblical theologians out there. This is definitely something you'd like to you not only would like to but should be reading. And uh, keeping up on so the K Rooks Journal and Northwest Theological Seminary and Bill. Um, one more thing I'd like to mention for those who might not be familiar is uh, the MTI OPC course that you teach. Could you just describe in a few minutes what uh, MTI is and uh, the course you teach there? Yeah, the MTI, uh, the Ministerial Training Institute of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, offers a number of courses. Uh, to those who are ministers, those who are preparing for the ministry, maybe under care or licensed, and also for, um, for ruling elders can also participate in these courses. Some of those courses are made, uh, constructed in terms of brush-up. Some of the courses in which you can take um, as... Um, as fresh courses that you maybe don't have much background in. Mm -hmm. Some of it has been designed in order to uh, sort of bridge the gaps of what they feel, to, what the OPC has found to be some, um, how should we say it and say it politely here, uh, gaps that need be filled that are not filled, filled uh, in seminary and, right. uh, education right now. And so, like, for example, you get OPC history or church polity there. Mm -hmm. I happen to do apologetics and, uh, and, and for, for ministers, brush up or whatever. And, and the issue here is to try to uh, give people a more um, in, uh, an introduction to Van Til's apologetic method. That's which great. has definitely shaped the OPC, and so that's what I that's what I do. The course is basically online. The courses meet um, for like a semester, but it's usually done on on work outside of a classroom situation. And then the we always meet in a what they call a concentration period at the end of the course, in which there is about anywhere from nine to ten hours of lectures. Um, uh, with the students that have been in your course, enrolled in your course at the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you lecture to them, get to meet them personally, and go over things at that time. So that's basically the structure and how that works. And the, the Christian education uh, um, aspect of the denomination OPC is the head of that. So Danny Olinger yeah. and uh, Pat Clausen are people to contact if people are interested in and getting and seeing a list of those courses that are offered. Right, and their their information and the information about the MTI will be available at opc.org. Just go under the uh, Christian Education link or section on the website, and you'll find more information about that. And I will give personal testimony. I testify 
that this is a great course. I sat in it a few years ago. So if you're able, uh, please uh, visit uh, opc.org, find out information about the Ministerial Training Institute, and participate because it'll be well worth your while. Uh, Jared, you had one more piece of uh, information? Yeah, just one more thing. When this airs, uh, the weekend of uh, November 5th through 7th, there's going to be a uh, Westminster Full Confidence in Scripture conference in the Grand Rapids area oh. at Harvest Presbyterian Church. Oh. It's an OPC church in the Grand Rapids our, area. That's our mega church. Dude. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> and so we're excited about that. Uh, Dr. Gaffin is speaking on Doctrine of Scripture issues. Uh, Tim Whitmer is going to be there, author of Shepherd Leader. Uh, Dr. Garner is going to be there, and uh, John Curry. So if you want more information on that, if you're in the area or close to it, you can just go to wts.edu slash full confidence, and it has where Harvest is and the times and everything like that. Yes. Dale Van Dyke's son is sitting in my enlightenment class right now at Covenant College. <laughs> Josh. <laughs> Very <laughs> Who is nice. Pastor of Harvest. <laughs> oh, great. Perfect. Hey, Dale, good, good segue. <laughs> There you go. It all ties in together. Well, you know, uh, you know, you can find anybody in the OPC and find a very short road to anybody else in the OPC. Yeah. <laughs> Three degrees of Kevin Bacon or less. Yeah, yeah. It's like two degrees of Machen here. Um, right. In fact, my 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 connection to Machen is is two degrees. It goes through John Galbraith, John Galbraith to Machen. So I'm only two degrees removed. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, and so are most people. Well, uh, joking aside, although we love speaking and uh, and kidding around with Dr. Bill Dennison, he's such a great guy. We're going to be speaking today about uh, Jay Gresson Machen and Rudolf Boltmann, reflections upon the Marburg experience, 1905 to 1906. Uh, you can take a look at this. Uh, it's it's a it's not an obscure journal at all, but it's it's going to be it, it's going to be a journal that many people aren't familiar with simply because it's a diglot, uh, and it's and it's a really high scholarly journal. But um, I'll put information uh, to this German journal available uh, and links to or, uh, I should say annotated links uh, to this information on the website uh, in conjunction. Uh, with this episode. But, uh, Bill, would you just uh, open us up here today by uh, just explaining who Rudolf Boltmann was? Uh, we did an episode a few uh, months, well, several months ago, discussing Rudolf Boltmann. He's a huge figure in New Testament studies, and Bill did a dissertation on him at uh, Michigan State, correct? Correct. Yeah, That's so i uh, got a good Spartan dissertation here. And, uh <laughs> So they're not only are they good at football this year, but in times past they have been uh, good at German philosophy and its influence upon uh, New Testament studies. But um, we have many listeners that will be very familiar with Rudolf Boltmann, but also we'll have many other listeners who are new to not only Reformed theology, but just theology in general. So could you um, maybe describe a few of the salient features of uh, Boltmann's approach to the New Testament? Yeah, what the... Um Rudolf Boltmann's lifespan is 1884 through 1920. Uh, excuse me, through 1976. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, Boltmann is most famous for a landmark article written uh, in 1941 on the issue of demythologizing the scriptures uh, of a hermeneutic, the scripture, a hermeneutical approach. The way sometimes I like to put it is simply this, is that uh, in what had started in higher critical thought in 19th century Germany uh, had basically come to fruition to the position that, that for the most part, the religious motif throughout the scriptures is, is, a, is a dialogue of, of mythology. So, since it is a dialogue of mythology, and since we must, in an age of science, and uh, an age of science in empirical rationalism, uh, uh, get at what religion could possibly mean and where religion could be possibly true for people, we must get behind the text in its mythical structures and its mythical understanding or portrayal. And so Boltmann, uh, Boltmann uh, uh, set forth this demythologizing uh, hermeneutic in which you can get at what he thought the true meaning of Scripture. Now, a very simple, and uh, it would be bizarre to most people, 
way of looking at this is that, for example, on the resurrection of Christ, uh, the resurrection of Christ uh, did did not happen in Boltmann's estimation mm-hmm. in the realm of history, um, and in other words, in time and space. But but Christ's resurrection must be affirmed. You see, behind this idea of this objectification of history, behind that mythical portrayal of of, of the death and resur- of the resurrection of Christ in the Bible, but you must still to be a Christian hold to um, told to the resurrection of Christ. But the resurrection of Christ occurs in a realm. Uh, related that, that was referred to as Geschichte, mm-hmm. uh, rather than history, uh, and so in that realm is an existential realm. It's a realm that is beyond the subject and the object relationship in this world. Now, as uh, Dr. Knudsen used to always say when I took my Bultmann seminar from him is that we as students and we as people, just everyday people, we just can't relate and understand what's going on here. <laughs> because you, because you, actually, you actually have moved beyond the basic reference of our own lives in terms of subject-object relationship. Yeah. We walk into a room, you know, we look at the room, we look at walls. I, the I, am related to objects outside of myself. And then to say that somehow that there is, that I must uh, have faith, uh, that faith is defined, let's put it that way, faith is defined in the context of being beyond a subject-object relationship is just extremely foreign to us, mm-hmm. and this is. But this is why Boltmann's theology is what is called an existential theology. Interesting. So, and and it is. And it, what is also possibly very bizarre to hear from this for some of your listeners would be, nevertheless, the only place you can get this is through reading the scriptures, even though the scriptures is basically a mythical portrayal of religion. (laughs) The only way you can get to this existential realm is that the scriptures must point you in that direction, and the other way you re- you can get to this truth of of of, of your religion or th- and in terms of a faith assertion is through charisma, and that is through the preaching of the word. Mm-hmm. And so you meet Christ in the in the preaching of the word. Boltmann was very interesting in this regard, um, in that in in that he was very very when he went to Berlin as a student. Uh, in 1904, 1905, he got the full, the full brunt of Ritual's effects of German liberalism, and that is a social gospel. And so he walked in, it may even sound in some ways uh, paramount to some of the things we face in the church today. And that is he walks into these German Lutheran churches in Berlin and sees that they're just oriented towards programs. Mm. What type of programs? Programs in terms of social, cultural redemption <laughs> and mm-hmm. transformation. Yeah, it doesn't sound that of, much different. Uh, mm-hmm, yeah, today. and he was appalled because he, he wanted to hear, he says, the way to faith, the way that faith is, um, uh, is, is, is encouraged and grown is through the preaching of the word. And thus the churches should be, uh, should be committed to the preaching of the word instead of a social gospel. Mm. So that's always important too, because Boltmann is a higher critic in terms of New Testament. And, and yet at the same time, even though he's very critical of the New Testament, of, 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 excuse me, critical in terms of, of understanding the New Testament, that the only way to understand it is through the uses of higher critical methods. Right. Many people would say, oh, that's liberal. But Boltmann made a distinction between, at this time, there was a distinction 
between liberal theology and what his hermeneutic was trying to perform out of what was called the history of religion school. Yeah, and I want to I want to uh, for our listeners today uh, provide the word of the day. That's religions geschichtliche Schule. Could you describe what that school is? That's that's history of religion school. Yeah, what you're doing there is that you're definitely comparing and trying to get at the sources of the religion of the religion of the New Testament, for example, and that was Boltmann's field, New Testament studies. So, as a as a landmark individual in the uh, in in New Testament studies with the uh, synoptic tradition, with his work on the synoptic tradition in 1921, he was trying to unpack in that volume. What are the religious influences on the synoptic writers, on the so-called synoptic writers? Right. <laughs> okay, for right. his, for him. So is is the influence that that comes becomes portrayed as the religion of Jesus portrayed in the four Gospels? Is the religion behind the religion of Jesus is that is that oriented from the Jewish? religious cults, so to speak, mm. or is it, does Jesus's religion have its roots in Hellenism? Right. <laughs> that was the big, that was the big debate at the time. So, uh, Boltmann came through, uh, mostly at least in terms of when he looked at Paul, for example, when he looked at Paul, he saw Paul being influenced by what was called at the time, the Oriental myth cults. Okay, and uh, and so at the and that basically at that time were 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 religions that were coming out of Babylon, <laughs> mm. and uh, and those things that those religions had, for example, those religions had, for example, uh, an understanding that there was a kind of deity who was born into the creation. Uh, See, sounds like the incarnation. That's that's where Christianity must have got the yeah, idea. Yeah, from. yeah exactly. Borrowed. See, that's, yeah, so they well, borrow. So Christianity, Paul, and the New Testament borrowed these kinds of nuances and uh, made made theology. Excuse me, made transferred uh, Jesus's religion that he taught into uh, into a theology. And, and some people <laughs> might. Uh, might think this is just uh, out there as some academic pursuit, but if you've ever had to take a religion course at a university, I remember I had to take a comparative religion course, and the whole premise of the class is this very method, the, mm-hmm. the exactly. history of religion school, and the idea being let's compare all of these together and find the common denominator, and therefore we can basically explain away all all the features of these religions because they're just the result of common cultural practices. Therefore, exactly. the, the conclusion being, well, Christianity isn't unique. It can't be true. God didn't reveal anything to these people. Everything can be explained naturally. It's just it's right. a scientific uh, demythologization, denaturalism, or de-supernaturalism uh, uh, that, that, this, that, this, uh, that undergoes here. And so even the people out there that might think this is just something that New Testament scholars are dealing with, um, if you've ever taken a course like this, or if you have kids that are going to university, this is still very much alive and well in terms of uh, the study of religions. If I just go on a sidelight on this to even affirm your point further, uh, I, I used to, and this is a little bit, little bit different, but the presuppositions to, the, to this whole structure, you're exactly right, Ken, and it's playing to the background of this. I used to, when I taught high school for 17 years, I used to set up a course on the history of Christian doctrine to sort of give the students a kind of background that if they went to a secular school, this would exactly be what they found. And lo and behold, for example, what I used to point out to them is, is you will be told in a comparative religions course, and uh, if there are parents out there and there are people going to secular institutions listening to this, I would almost bet that this is exactly the experience they have had. If you take a comparative religions course in a secular university, you will be told that Christianity never became a formal religion until the Nicene Creed. Mm. 
up until that point, you know, taking they're basically taking the presuppositions of Van Harnack's study that everything is basically confusing concerning the identity of Jesus Christ until the Nicene Creed. It's at the Nicene Creed that the that the, that the church decides the church decides, yeah, decides at Nicaea right. that Jesus Christ is actually God. You find you know, this in very the... God of very God. So what's up until then is 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 very obscure. There's disagreements in the church. Nobody really agrees. So the dogma of Christianity that Jesus Christ is God is not found in the Bible. It's found in the creedal statement. But behind that, exactly, Ken, and what you're saying is behind that lies the presuppositions and the assumptions and the and almost as canonicity these the the higher critics approach to the New Testament and things like that. And Boltman stands behind that in many ways concerning the authenticity of the biblical text concerning the affirmation of who Jesus Christ actually is. Yeah. And now uh, on the same note, let's uh, shift gears to our other big figure, one that is going to be much more familiar to many of our listeners out of J. Gresham Machen. And we're speaking about the history of religion school and uh, origins of various religions. And lo and behold, J. Gresham Machen has a book called the origin of Paul's religion. Uh, could you describe uh, the origin of this book, uh, where it came from, and, and its significance in the New Testament world? What's very interesting about this, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure concerning all the ins and outs of this, and uh, and possibly Daryl Hart would be more uh, more of a, a source of this, but I will give you what I do know. Sure. And, and that is, Machen was interesting because of his studies in Germany, uh, his background there, and his now rising status of his appointment at Princeton, was asked to give the day James Sprunt lectures at Union Theological Seminary in Richard, Richmond, Virginia. Mm. He was, these were commissioned uh, the origin of he wrote a book and it is published in nineteen it was published in nineteen twenty one the origin of paul's religion in which he is interacting with the higher critics on the issues of the origin of paul's religion whether the origin is from from the uh, from Judaism and Hellenism and things like that now what's interesting about this is that in 1915 he was commissioned to give these lectures but they had to be delayed <laughs> mm-hmm. and they were delayed because of his commitment that he uh, that he he went in he went to World War 1 working for the YMCA yeah, selling cigarettes okay. yeah <laughs> so he went to France so he so he didn't so he could not give the lectures so the lectures were really delayed for 6 years What's very interesting about this is this is a man who is not to give these prestigious lectures uh, at Union Theological Seminary at the time, who is only uh, a recent appointee and assistant professor, mm, not exactly. a full professor. Yet. It's fascinating to think mm. about uh, yeah, somebody being uh, commissioned to do this work. Um, and, and I'd like to know, you know, why <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I don't, that, that's, that's something that possibly someone like Daryl Hart would yeah. know why they made the invitation. Now, I think the one point would be obvious. One point would be obvious here, Cannon, is this, is that, he, you know, he's quickly returned from Germany. He's been working with, with, uh, German scholarship and so it might, I think it would be fair here to say that because of his already early expertise right. uh, on that, on, on, on the recent stuff that's going down in Germany and studying there, that they were, going to, they were jumping on this. There might also be some... I, I, think, that, I think that's fair to say. Now, well, I think so, too. And clearly, yeah. I mean, the, the, the lectures clearly demonstrate his capabilities. But if we were going to be cynical, too, we might also say there might have been something to do with his last name uh, in being in Virginia as well. That is that is quite quite possible as we as it, in some ways it could be argued if we know remember Bates Machen's strong roots to southern 
to the Southern Church in terms of his family and so forth. It would be, it would be, it, it was uh, in some ways uh, interesting and a surprise, perhaps, that he went to Princeton rather than Union yeah. when he went for his further education. But that's explained mostly, as I understand it, because of the family's very close relationship to Patton, the, and uh, Francis Patton, who was the president at Princeton Seminary, who had been in the Machen house for dinner uh, and, uh, and became friends with the Machens. So uh, that, was, that is definitely one of the reasons why, why Machen went to Princeton rather than Union. Mm. Now, <laughs> and, uh, so that's interesting in that regard as well. So, he's, so that's the background, and so he comes and gives those lectures in, um, in 1921, uh, it, which is very interesting. It was in January of 1921. And also for your listeners, this would be possibly also interesting. That is about one month prior to Warfield's death. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't put those and together. So, right. So, yeah. So he, he gives those lectures and he, and it comes back to Princeton and not, and soon after that, Warfield himself dies, mm-hmm. and uh, some of your readers may be inter- interested in, in terms of a footnote that I have, which was helped by uh, John Meather, mm-hmm. is that that's, you, get the, you get one of the, um, uh, one of the points there that, um, that when Machen returned and then observed and walked out as, as the Warfield's funeral ended, he was talking about that this might be the death of old Princeton, the phrase old Princeton here, yeah. uh, that, that, that uh, Machen was already seeing from his perspective of orthodoxy the deterioration of Princeton. He was already witnessing that on, on campus. Right. Anyway. So that that's an interesting side side note, which is a footnote in in the. Yeah, article. I see that it's on page uh, two eighteen here for anyone who's who has access to this. It's the Journal for the History of Modern Theology. It's uh, volume sixteen uh, in two thousand nine. The German there's Zeitschrift für Neuer Theologie Geschichte, and uh, it's it's uh, these are some helpful articles. Another contribution in here you've you've uh, included Boltmann's review which is very interesting and it's on the subject here we want to get to the potential acquaintance between Boltmann and Machen but it but Boltmann actually reviewed uh, Machen's book The Origin of Paul's Religion which seems very interesting to us why you know if we think in the broader world of theology the the the, the vast landscape that is modern theology or that is even uh, even uh, liberalism or evangelicalism now, uh, we see Boltmann. Everyone knows who Rudolf Boltmann is, but not so many people know who J. Gresson Machen is outside of our own circles. Why in the world was Rudolf Boltmann reviewing Machen's book? That's, that's an interesting question, and I like also the way that you put this question. At, you, the comment you made there, Kandon, at the end, and that is, you know, uh, concerning Machen and Boltmann and their connection, and the world may not know who Machen is. Um, the editor of this journal, Mark Chapman, uh, who also did the book post for my for the Bolt, my my Boltmann volume, he had we had carried on a correspondence with each other and he said, you know, what would be very interesting. He was the one who stimulated this project. Um, and he said, what would be very interesting is, is that the German critical scholars alive today, it would be interesting if they saw what an American conservative, um, uh, evangelical, uh, thought of, the German scholars uh, are the German schools and teachers at his day. So he was the one, Chapman was the one that stimulated this and said, I think it would be interesting for German scholars today who are interested in Boltmann, who have interest in Boltmann, to get the perspective of Boltmann or at least the Marburg school 
from an American conservative. And that's how this all basically came about in terms of putting together this project, because he noticed that I had made Mark comments about Machen in, uh, in my book, which he, which he looked at and read. And so uh, what's interesting here um, is this, and this again goes all the way back for me, at least personally, this goes back to 1976-77. I don't remember which semester. So, and um, and I was working on Boltmann then, and at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And uh, and Dick Gaffin came up, and I was talking to him about it, and he said, "Did you know that Ma- that that Boltmann reviewed?" Machen's book on the origin of Paul's religion. Well, that was right. my first time I had learned about that. And I said, I didn't know. So he <laughs> took me back to the stacks and even got it out for me and showed me. Meanwhile, meanwhile, he also had already worked on a translation of right. that. And so your, your listeners will be interested to know, is that what is I incorporated his translation of of the review, as the review is, I got permission to print the review uh-huh. in German, and it also, with Dick Gaffin's uh, kind consent, gracious consent, he also uh, also gave um, uh, gave the uh, translation of that. Now I was and reading was, this last night, uh, late at night. I was I was working, but I I was reading along, trying to stumble my way through the German. I didn't notice that the translation was there. And then I finally get and said, hey, this is in English. Great. I didn't, I didn't read the so, footnote here, and I'm just reading yeah. along. I'm like, okay, it's, here we go. Das yeah, Buch enthält eine Und I'm like, oh, man, this is going to take forever. And then I see, oh, this book contains a discussion of the – oh, great. <laughs> so I appreciate you putting both in there. It's nice. And this is a diglot and journal. Yeah, and what interesting at the time was that it, Dr. Gaffin said to me, said to me, you know, Mar- Boltmann studied at Marburg, and we know Machen studied with Marburg. Yes. He said, it would be interesting to find out sometime is whether they were there at the same time. And I dropped it. Obviously, uh, Dr. Gaffin has dropped that, and this is just an interesting side note. Side note. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, when I was working on my book, on Boltmann in my dissertation, the young Boltmann context for his understanding of God, um, I therefore investigated whether Machen and Boltmann were there at the same time, because I thought maybe from the letters of Machen, I would get more information to the right. landscape of exactly. Marburg at the time, and uh, that I knew were that were accessible. There were there were the family letters at Westminster Seminary's archives. So lo and behold, I found that's how this all started in the sense that I went in and, and found out. And then I discovered that they were at Marburg at the same time for at least one semester. And then, um, and then they were in two classes together as well, I was able to discover. But uh, yes, uh, so what Dick, Dr. Gaffin pointed out to me was, was, he, what his comment was, this is our only knowledge to our, to our knowledge. Excuse me. To our knowledge, this is the only connection yeah. between old Princeton and the history of religions, higher critical school. Hmm. And, uh, and that makes it very interesting. in in, in that regard that Boltmann reviewed the book and what that said to me then, now, why did he review the book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why did he review? Why is this the only sort of, why did he, he look at this? And, and, uh, and that sort of sent me on, on a direction to see if they, of course, were at Marburg at the same time, which they were, did they know each other? Um, and, and, um, for your listeners, my article ends with the idea that we don't know. <laughs> we know they're in two seminars, I mean, two classes together. One is a seminar and one is a big lecture. Uh, but we do not know whether they, I have not yet found any information that they had met each other or talked to each other. Now, now not only the two courses that they shared, uh, but also it appears they were both in what looks to be a fraternity 
um, a student society. Um, could you describe a little bit of that that cultural milieu, and did they happen to be members of the same society at all? They were not a member, and that's what I was. That was my last shot, Camden, to see <laughs> if there was a way in which I could find that they actually had a a talking or relationship with. Machen was invited into and was very difficult to get into these uh, fraternities. Especially for um, foreigners, right? Yes, for foreigners. And he was he was brought in, and the only way he could be brought in is, is what they called a guest listener. <laughs> yeah. But he was part at Marburg, the Franconia Student Society, and uh, these societies are very interesting in Germany at the time because they were a, a place in which you hung out either in turn and usually at a pub in various fraternities or these student societies, I should say more yeah, accurately. That's, that's right. Is these, 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 they met at, um, at certain type of pubs and certain type of restaurants and they were associated with that. Well, the um, fraternity, excuse me, the student society, society that Boltmann yeah. uh, belonged to turned out to be Eigel, uh, I-G-E-L. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so they were different, and, uh, and they, so they didn't, wouldn't be hanging out the same place. What's very interesting to me about the student societies is, this is very, very odd to me, is that it's on, it is on Monday and Tuesday nights, Right. They would hang out at these at these restaurants or taverns Late in the morning, and they would go from ten and basically yeah. the time to rally was around ten p.m. Right. and they would go into the very lean hours. hours, even as <laughs> as early as four a.m. Nice. and sit around and talk and discuss and and have these very very uh, intense discussions as well as some things of recreation as they would do in those kind of places. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting kind of saying, because I'm, I'm thinking if you stay up to two or 4 a.m., how good are you for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for classes? <laughs> but anyways, anyways, this was, this was a very, very uh, common habit. It's really and like then, an, un, an unorganized, or at least uh, it's basically like a doctoral seminar with, with beer apart from the classroom. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of learning and and ideas being tossed around, so it would be fascinating to see if Boltman and Machen were in that context together, which apparently they were not, but at least least in the courses they took, one of them was a seminar, was it not? Correct, and that's the possibility. The only thing on that, again, is I don't know what the rules of the seminar would be. They were both in Johannes Weiss, who was a higher... Higher critic uh, for your listeners in terms of New Testament, very famous in terms of, um, of, of his book on the kingdom of God, uh, written in 1892 from a higher critical point. But they were in a seminar, seminar together on 2 Corinthians 10 through 13. Uh-huh. Wow. Now that's interesting in itself in terms of my own studies because the, the, um, the transcripts or the bulletin, the college university, uh, Marburg University bulletin, which I have a copy of in terms of class listings for a semester, all it would put is vice um, seminar. Yeah. They don't give you the title. Right. So even for Boltmann scholars, all the people that have written on Boltmann's early life, nobody has the title. Guess where the title came from that we know what they took? Was it a major letter? That was the Machen letters, yeah, right? Nice. So, so, uh, so the Machen letters tell us that the course was on Second Corinthians ten through thirteen, which was a high, very. I don't want to get into all that because it gets pretty technical. But anyway, <laughs> let's just for the listeners say say that is a very very disputed text in terms of a nice model for higher critical scholars, <laughs> okay. in terms of Paul's. Uh, Paul's writing at what's being said and all that kind of thing. So I, I won't get into that a lot. But anyways, Machen audited that. Now, the question would be, was what, what would be the odds? Excuse me, what were the rules for an auditor? Right. Okay, does he talk? But at the same time, it was a smaller group. Does Machen, as we all know, does Machen walk out of class talking to Boltmann? 
talking to him in the hall. <laughs> and uh, because Machen was emphatic about, about staying away from, from those who were fellow foreigners studying there. And that was because the Germans would kind of keep you outside. They'd keep you at arm's leg- length if you were fraternizing with the other foreigners, correct? Correct. That is true. So if you wanted well, to get in with the Germans, dis- right? Exactly. You had to be only with the Germans. <laughs> well, and, yeah. speaking of uh, Machen's letters, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, a, another name that was out there, Wilhelm Hermann. Um, and can you explain a little bit about what his impact was in in just scholarship, but also on Machen and Boltmann? We you know, we know that there are letters that come from Machen to his mother talking about his experience there and how he's trying to wrestle through um, studying under this man who he disagrees with in, in one sense, but also sees kind of a, a piety coming from him that he, he needs to recognize. It's really um, quite surprising. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Hermann, uh, Wilhelm Hermann was an extremely important figure at Marburg. He could possibly be argued that he was the most uh, uh, the most magnetic figure at Marburg. Uh, even uh, as you will note, uh, if those uh, in the in the article, I point out that even John Bailey has this interesting statement about him uh, that you know, based in, in the simplicity of this, is that foreigners wanted to flock to Marburg to study under him. Oh, he was extremely energetic in the class, extremely dynamic. Machen uh, sits in his class, and uh, being a New Testament scholar, he decided to sit in his dogmatics two course. He's taking it out of sequence, the sequence that Hermann taught, was a tie he would tie, teach the one in the summer term, uh, term and then in the in the winter term he taught the second and um, and so he even just wanted to sit in there because he heard about him knew about him knew about his uh, magnetism and towards people and his scholarship he was a Lutheran and the mo and he was a again in the Lutheran uh, kind of um, what they would call the mediating school. He was, a, he had a continuity with Schleiermacher, so he would not consider himself uh, a radical uh, in the critical tradition, uh, what we would think is the critical tradition, like Strauss, but he wouldn't want to be in the side on the, he isn't on the conservative side like a Hengstenberg. And that's what it's. That's why the school sort of stands in the middle, a mediating school, and that mediating school is through Schleiermacher. Now, for us who are Orthodox, we would still be sort of amazed at this because we wouldn't get even consider Schleiermacher in that kind of context as right. well. Yes, but nevertheless, nevertheless, that was what the landscape was in Germany. And so in this Luther school, he also was the premier advocate in his theological, in his theological paradigm of Neo-Kantianism. And so uh, in the rise of Neo-Kantianism in which religion and faith has a distinctive sphere from culture. And culture is understood in Neo-Kantianism as science aesthetics or arts and morality and ethics and so and so machen goes there listens to, uh, immediately from his, as you as you have read the article re- here's the first lecture and he's just enthralled by it right and as a matter of fact within the first week he's even and stating in a in a letter that he's almost putting his New Testament studies aside, right. <laughs> yeah, because he is so taken by this man, and he comes to the conclusion, you know, he comes to the sort of conclusion at the time that uh, at the time that this guy is is extremely pious and godly, and he even admits that he thinks. Uh, uh, that Hermann knows Christ, has found Christ, uh, in this, even in this religious paradigm. I think what we're seeing here is a young man 
enthralled by the passion of a professor, still trying to orient himself in terms of what orthodoxy really means as he's listening to something that isn't orthodox, and he's trying to put this together and, and exactly as, as you said, Jared, in a sense what captures him also is the piety of this man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even Boltmann's comment also is helpful at this point, is that Boltmann, when he eventually studies under Hermann at Marburg, which is the next semester, he says people leave the classroom different when they went in. And he's saying this in a religious sense. Mm, wow, interesting. This I bet man, you they so did leave differently. It, it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he's, he's captured uh, by, he's just absolutely captured by this. And as uh, it's pretty well documented, of course, in Stonehouse's biography, it is, it is Hermann that almost that seduces Machen uh, from the possibility of remaining orthodox in his theology. He is that powerful and he is that strong. Now we, we think about uh, what Machen came to be, of course, uh, just a premier figure in, in conservative Presbyterianism. He founded uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. He led uh, the movement that ended up starting the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And we think of all the distinctives uh, of Machen and those movements in comparison to what we find with German liberalism. And, and then you read these letters and you find out how very close— uh, it might, you know, it, it might have been for Machen to be uh, per- entirely persuaded by liberalism and to go down that road, and how very different American Presbyterianism might have been had Machen uh, not uh, realized uh, some of the errors of this theology. Correct. You definitely see here. Um, you definitely see here uh, the grace of God. Oh. There's no other. There's no other explanation. And and the and, and and the grace of God operating in terms of covenant relationships. Mm-hmm. In other words, still the family, his his love for his family, and what his family had taught him about the Christian faith in terms of that covenant rearing, and also that that also is playing on him as he's as you know as you already already pointed out as he writes to his brother about this, that he maybe should be repenting for the things he's right. writing. He uses that very about, language. Yeah, about, about Hermann. Uh, there's, still, there's still that closeness at home, and I don't think we... And I think it is very important not to overlook, not to overlook the important, the important mentorship here of, of William Park Armstrong, who uh, who was his mentor at Princeton, a New Testament scholar, who also had studied in Germany and came back orthodox and sound. So being able to mm-hmm. to run his thoughts and in his works and his thinking through Armstrong, I think was helpful. I don't know, and this would be something of more research. I don't know exactly what went on when he got back. Uh, after the two semesters in Germany, spent here one semester at Marburg, then he went on to Göttingen and studied there, and then returned. I would be interested to hear, it would be interesting to be a fly in the wall listening to him and Armstrong talk (laughs) when he came back. So I think Armstrong was also, in terms of what we understand in our own theology as a covenant, as God providentially Placing that covenant bond with us, with our, with with those uh, who also um, uh, are with us in terms of that corporate community, uh, is also extremely p- playing in the providence of God's grace in terms of Machen's life. And um, I think we, it's very important not to forget that and and realize that because I, you know, I used to, I've just seen in my own lifetime, time and time again that people going going through reformed institutions have gone off to these schools and studied under critical scholars or or those type of things and um and they don't come back orthodox. And we yeah, we can't even read history uh like Ernst Trolch. 
we, we, you know, as Christians, we have to read and understand that God is at work in history and has broken into history. Um, and we need to do that wisely as we study history, but we, we can't read this and try to come up with entirely naturalistic explanations for Machen's journey and for the, the beginning of Westminster and even the OPC. But we have to acknowledge uh, that God is at work here and in other places. Jared? Uh, yeah, just bringing this into our current context, uh, we had a, a question from the chat room. Um, just wondering, are there still generally conservative scholars today that assume the same epistemology and, and hermeneutic of Boltman? Um, it, you know, what is what is his influence today, um, even in you know more or less evangelical circles, or I guess what you would call yeah. that generally conservative? Is his impact still? Uh, reigning, yeah. even in circles we might think it's not. Yeah. Uh, this is a very difficult question. And on the empirical side of what we see, uh, for the most part, Boltman is dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, on on the on an empirical level, you know, there isn't there isn't a a a. <laughs> a point in which everybody's running around still and reading him and engaging him. Yeah. That is, okay, uh, there's, you know, there's the, the age of the post-Boltmanians, and that even fades out. Um, but, you know, in saying that, it would be also uh, very naive to say that there isn't still a group in Germany, uh, of course, uh, there is a... Uh, um, they even have a, my daughter sent me at Marburg, they have a, a bust of Boltmann there. Yeah, yeah. So she, when she studied a Fulbright scholar there last year, yeah. And uh, so she sent me a picture of that. So there's, and there is in various institutes of uh, this. For example, there is a conference each year, usually around March, in which uh, um, Boltmann's, Reflection on Boltmann's material for the present day uh, is taken up this year. Very interesting. The subject this year coming uh, in 2011, the subject is on revelation. Is it Verstehen or Erleben is the, is the, is the title of it. And that's basically uh, revelation, um, understanding or, or experience. Now it's yeah. interesting that they. Now it's very interesting. I look at that and I look at the uh, the uh, basic program for that conference. And this is their Jared. This is their thirteenth annual conference. So that really? is going. They're doing this every year, huh. and so there is some still work going. But what I'm talking about here, I think, when we talk about is Boltmann stuff. There is still obviously you're going to have to Boltmann stuff is still, in many ways, his material, his critique of the Synoptic Gospels, forum criticism, we may say we're past that in some ways, but there's still, as you're past it, you're presupposing the fundamental concepts in critical thought of it. So in that sense, even as you advance, there there is, you're building upon what has gone before. So you, any scholar worth his salt in the critical tradition is still going to have to deal with Boltmann mm-hmm. in that sense. Because um, he's part of the broader milieu, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Even though there isn't a huge Boltmann school out there. The way I can – here's what I'm subconsciously thinking of, and let me bring it to the consciousness of the, of the discussion, and is Bart is huge. Yep. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. When you think of the two premier 20th century impacts in terms of non reformed yeah. Christian orthodoxy on the world, you think of Bart and you think of Boltmann. You think of Bart in terms of theological formulation, you think of Boltmann in terms of, of New Testament studies. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you think of and today, 2010, okay, evangelicals. Are are steadily flocking to Bart. Yeah, when when you mentioned um, just the given. emphasis on on preaching the word uh, in Boltman, that's that's what immediately came to mind. Is it is you know has that Pietistic ring with without a you know an, an orthodox uh, underpinnings, I guess. 
Correct. It correct, and it and it and it can and it can appeal to us because even our own reform confession standards say you know it's the preaching of the word. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, but but you see, but when you start figuring out what the charisma is, and this is you know this is what it, <laughs> is why it is a blessing for your listen. It is a blessing and an absolutely imperative in my judgment to yeah. be a Vantillian. Yeah. Nice. Absolutely. Yes. Well, <laughs> Gotta I love that's, that. I think that's a great, great point <laughs> because, uh, to wrap up because on. Because <laughs> only, only through the Van Til's transcendental analysis, through that type of analysis, do you, when you re see a word, and this is, you know, this is sort of getting back that we discussed prior to be coming on the air. This is my real concern of the present landscape out there for both of, for, for your listeners and both of you. This is what my present concern is. What I meet constantly and what I am struggling with and trying to perceive better and get in my hand, hand on this is this evangelical movement to Bart and to looking at him lacks, these evangelicals lack Van Til. Right. Yeah. Because they they see terminology, and there's a reason why it's called New Orthodox, yeah. as we all know. Because it all sounds right, but you see, when you unpack the meaning of these terms, you see, you unpack the meaning of, uh, for example, kerygma, they have an entirely different meaning than we do. Mm-hmm. Which leads, as you notice in terms of the beginning of the article, Camden, leads to great, as Machen's eventual conclusion in Christianity and liberalism, that liberalism is a different religion. And I know I may make people, your listeners, some of them, if they are uh, sort of getting into Bart, upset at this point, but Bartianism is a different religion. I'll say it. Yeah. Well, that's what Van Til did in titling yes, exactly. his books. He, you know, Machen exactly. wrote Christianity and Liberalism. Van Til came along and wrote The New Modernism, and he's speaking of Bartianism. But then he wrote right. Christianity and Bartianism, mm-hmm. intentionally Correct. using that title to allude to Machen's conclusions and assessment of liberal theology that with Bartianism as the same thing. I, I brought this point up to a professor at, at Marquette, um, you know, this is a week ago, and uh, I, I told him about uh, Bart's influence and how Cornelius Van Til thought that Bartianism was at root just another modernism. And he said, mm-hmm. "Wow, that is interesting." <laughs> and so, I, I, I mean, good, isn't good it for him? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, they don't like Bart. I mean, he was a Roman Catholic, so of course he doesn't right, like Bart. Right. But um, you know, Van Til was cutting to the quick and saying, "No, we're not going to play around with this and not be duped uh, by the the." veneer appearance of an orthodoxy because this is severely different it is drastically different from uh reformed orthodoxy and from from what scripture teaches and and can uh, i say something at this point as well in, in in terms of that and the reason the reason i believe that the modern you know evangelical climate really this is at least one point that i i i am pretty confident of making that the modern evangelical theologian who is incorporating Bardian theology without discernment into their own positions. The reason that this is, an, is, is alarming is because, you see, they don't, the modern person doesn't understand the neo-Kantian as well as the existential categories that Bart is using. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah, and 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 that's unless they get into a full-fledged understanding of unpacking the structures of modern existentialism in the first in the first half of the 20th century, they will not truly understand what Bart is saying, and they will make Bart into an evangelical because the orthodoxy of language is there, but it's not there in terms of true meaning, which they cannot perceive. Oh. That, that's a great interpretive point. I mean, you know, in one sense, Bart is borrowing capital from Orthodox Christianity just as much as any other system, and um, exactly. changing its meaning um, to something that is when you when you get into the system completely unorthodox. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and that's why I always, you see, my point that I have constantly made is, is that I love working with Boltmon as opposed to Bart, because Boltmon, in my judgment, is intellectually honest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so he yeah. doesn't believe in the resurrection, bodily resurrection, and he says it. He'll tell you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I can I, see. I can work with that. You see. I can under. I can work with that and understand it in terms of his structure of his thought. <laughs> uh-huh. Even though I think you know. Even though I think that is an extremely false understanding of the Bible. Yeah. Okay. And of biblical Christianity. But you. But we. I continue to have. Um, long discussions with evangelicals or theologians unter- with whether Bart believed in a bodily resurrection. Oh, you right. know that the debate out there. He's a and, he's a uh, theological illusionist. Yes, and 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 it's interesting too. My advisor at and my advisor at um, and in religion at at Michigan State, uh, who who. Um, who, by the way, Fred Graham, who's written the classic work, by the way, on his dissertation published, classic work on Calvin's Geneva in terms of the economic situation. But anyways, Graham was over in Germany. He was telling me, he was telling me one time in his office that um, he was over there and he was talking to people just about this. You know, here's Graham over there in about the 60s. And so when Bart and Boltmann are still the big, the big figures in German thought, and it was interesting, he said, that the people he talked to in churches, now this is the laity, would make, we understand what Boltman's saying, we don't understand what Bart's saying. Hmm. Wow. That was yeah. in it. Now, that's just an empirical observation there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, when I even, if you, if, if you remember the 1917 sermon by Boltman that I, that I have in my book, I even asked Boltman's daughter personally, whether a person in the pew could really understand what he was saying. And that's, <laughs> of course, of course, in a typical family situ- situation, she said, of course they could. <laughs> and I'm sitting there saying, I don't think so. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> What's this hidden in, you know, that God is both good and evil <laughs> and yeah. hidden and all this kind of, all this kind of existential language and that's going on there. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but, you know, like I say, you know, you, you, you take those kind of things uh, with that, but I think with a grain of salt, maybe, but nevertheless, I think there's some validity, at least hearing, you know, when people are saying something, you know, what are they actually hearing even in the, in the pew? So exactly. No, it's really important to study these things, and uh, it's really uh, helpful to have you on, Bill, to discuss uh, Boltman and to discuss uh, this theological milieu and this possible acquaintance uh, between Boltman and Machen. If you'd like to read more about Boltman, please pick up The Young Boltman, Context for His Understanding of God, 1884 to 1925. That is a book by uh, Dr. William Dennison, our guest today, and that is available. Uh, You can also find this journal article, if you have access uh, to a theological uh, library or uh, interlibrary loan, you can find the Journal for the History of Modern Theology, Zeitschrift für Neue Theologie Geschichte. It is uh, Volume 16, Issue 2, 2009. And uh, everything we've spoken about today is available in there. The article, um, Boltmann's Review, and then Machen's Letters. Um Westminster is available. Well, uh, before that, I'd like to mention Northwest uh, Theological Seminary. Uh, Bill is a professor there, and you can find them online at uh, nwts.edu. And uh, Westminster Theological Seminary is available on in a variety of means through uh, various social media at uh, facebook.com slash westminsteronline and youtube.com slash westminsteronline. And finally, of course, you can find us, Reformed Forum, at reformedforum.org, and there you'll find links to all of our other websites and information about what we are up to, including our other programs. And uh, future discussions uh, will be listed at reformedforum.tv slash calendar. Uh, with all that, we want to thank everybody for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.